Whoa, good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a quick little GDP minute. Listen, fair warning, today's podcast is a little bit longer than most of our podcasts because I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with John Red Shea. He goes by Red. He is a former Irish mobster with the Winter Hill Gang and a Whitey Bulger associate, and he's also written two books called Rat Bastards and A Kid from Southie. And... um. It was just one of the most fascinating interviews that I've ever run. And he was totally an open book and he answered every question I asked for the most part. And um, what a life, man. And at one point I asked him, I said, you know, you you've lived a one of one life. No one's ever lived a life like you. And he said, yeah. And so it's just I'm still kind of taking everything in. Um, Some of the things that he talked about were his time in the Irish mob the glamour and the clout that came with it and him liking that. And then just the rush of like building a business when he was like dealing tons and tons of Coke and like what that was like and building and being poor and then having tons of money. And then he also talked about how deeply hurt he was when he found Whitey Bulger uh, sold him out. He talked about the importance of the code and never breaking. He also talked about Boston being a racist city and how where those stereotypes come from with the busing. He talked in depth about how he used to break coke, and he talked about being disciplined and his upbringing with his mother, who was super strict, and his father, who wasn't around very much, who was an alcoholic. And that's just craziness, man. It was just a fascinating, fascinating episode. And and John was a totally an open book, so... I'm very grateful to have run it. I hope you guys enjoy this. If you want just the craziest podcast in terms of just stories and honesty and authenticity, I I think this is going to be a really good episode for you. So again, if you enjoyed this episode, just share with a friend, man. That's all we ask. And uh, hit me in the DM on IG at Golden Deer Productions or at Big Bochi. And let me know what you think. Thank you so much, and this is John Red Shea's Golden Hour. And, again, at the end, we did a little research gang, book club gang for this episode. For we Half the producers read Rap Bastards, half did a kid from South, and I just want to shout out the whole producing team, Lexi B., Sarah Slugs, and Newly Riley, who's on. They did a great job turning this around. So, again, this is John Red Shea's Golden Hour. Enjoy. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hey, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate you. Yeah, my pleasure. Can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name's John Red Shea. I wrote the book Rat Bastards, and um, it's uh, South Boston based, and, uh, and it's the, I used to be a Whitey Bulger in the Irish Mafia. And I did 12 years in prison without giving anybody up. And um, Whitey knew about uh, the investigation that was going on at the time. And he never told me. And he used me as a sacrificial lamb. Well, you also wrote another, you wrote another book besides Rap I Bastards. I did. I also wrote an, a, a young adult book, which is called uh, A Kid from Southie. And um, it's loosely based off of Rap Bastards. But uh, it, it's, like I said, loosely but um, it's a twist in the end of that book. And uh, 
I mean, I'm proud of that book as well as Rap Bastards. And Rap Bastards became a New York Times bestseller. Mark Wahlberg wrote the introduction to it, so which I'm very grateful for. Mark's a hell of a guy. I know, and you played your buddy Mickey Ward in a movie. I know, I know. <laughs> we, we were on the phone for everyone who was listening. John and uh, Mickey used to be buddies growing up, and they boxed together. Can you guys? Can you kind of explain what you guys were doing, like when you were like, what was it, 13, 14? So the first time me and Mickey uh, encountered each other, and um, when we were very young, we were 13 years of age, and it was in Lowell in his hometown at the uh, boys club, and it was for the uh, Silver Mittens. And um, we met in the finals of the Silver Mittens, and he beat me by a decision. So, okay, I never forgot about it, if you will. And uh, so years later, we met again. We met again as uh, older in the amateurs because we were juniors back then. And uh, every Monday night at the Hobaway House in Lynn, which is not there anymore, as you come over the uh, bridge from Revere, um, they would have boxing matches. And we were young at that time in training and boxing, and it was a great uh, uh, forum for us to to go to every Monday and, and look forward to, you know, from all the training that you're doing in the gym all the time, you know? So you're always hungry as a kid. Ah, I can't wait. I can't wait. So this particular evening, Monday, they, they match me with Mickey. And how old are you at this time? Like 16, 17? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So they match me up, me and Mickey together. And my trainer, Tommy Connors, who's a character, um, he says, hey, go over and tell Mickey you haven't forgot about it when you were younger for the finals of the Silver Mittens. You haven't forgot that he beat you and you're not, it ain't happening tonight. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to conserve my energy, you know, because that wasn't my style anyway to do that. So he, he kept up with it and I says, fine, I'll go over and do it. So I went over, Mickey's getting his hands wrapped um, by his step brother, Dickie, and he got some people sitting around him, you know, and they're all relaxed. I walk over, I look up, look down at Mickey, and I say, hey, Mickey, I said, I, I, I haven't forgotten that you beat me in the silver mittens by a decision. I said, well, tonight you're not going to do that. Tonight I'm kicking your ass. So Mickey lo looking at me real cool and collective, and as I'm walking away, I hear him say to his buddies, that guy's from Southie, he's crazy. <laughs> I bursted out laughing. <laughs> so now I go back and I go, shit, I just told Mickey I'm gonna kick his ass tonight. That means I gotta kick his ass, I'm a man of my word. I gotta do what I gotta do. So I lie down I, and I get some rest before um, I wrap my hands. And real quick, was Mickey known as a prominent fighter back then, kind of like oh, you? Oh, we, we both were. We both were. Yeah, we were both champions, uh, as a matter of fact, in uh, w uh, uh, weight divisions. Yeah. Yeah, even as juniors, we were champions, not just in the images. So this yeah, was like both. a big match, like you two facing off was kind of a big Yeah, it, 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 at that time it was, yeah, because we were two top, two top fighters in, in New England, from New England. So um, uh, that said... I'm a man, my word, I got to go out and do what I got to do, right? So the bell rang for the first round. I went right at Mickey. 
I held nothing back. Just no, no feeling out or anything like that. No jabs. Right to the power. Right hand, left hook. And uh, I brought the fight to him. Did you and, land it, uh, the first one? Excuse me? Did you land the first two punches? I went right at him, yeah. I was the first to, to land. And then, because um, I put the pressure right on him. He had no choice but to fight back, of course. And uh, so we, we were going at it, and, um, and we're going really good at it with power punches right off the bat. Uh, um, kind of like two pit bulls going at it, if you will. So um, the, the bell rang, but we didn't hear the bell, and we didn't pr really care about the bell at that time <laughs> because it was so, we were so indulged and so ferocious at the time in the fight. Kept swinging. We kept on swinging. The referee jumped in finally and pulled us apart and disqualified both of us right then and there. And so I say to Mickey, when I see him, I go, hey, Mickey, who's the only guy out of your whole career, your whole career from amateurs to juniors to professional, who's the only guy in your whole career you ever get disqualified from? He just laughs. He's That's like, you. Johnny. <laughs> I said, so I, I, I hold that honor, I said, being to being disqualified to get, uh, against you. I know. We should, do, we should get the rematch all organized, and we'll do it at the old Suffolk Downs. Yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> Mickey's, he's, we're, we're good friends. He's a great guy. Now, were some of those boxing days back then, um, did you adapt some of those moments into a kid from Southie? Because you talk a lot about fights. and that, How real was kid from Southie? Was it all personal experience? Uh, it was personal experience, and like I said, it's loosely based off of um, uh, rap bastards, if you will. And, um, you know, a kid from Southie, you know, is a really, I, I, I think it's a real good uh, book for young adults. Um, and you can get it on audio. Audio is the best. I, I actually love it on audio. Listen you, to it. You call me a sped man? I thought it was good for my age. I'm 24. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's good for everyone. And I liked the, the uh, narrator did a good job with the voices, I thought. Yeah, he wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. You know, he, he, had, uh, he had a pretty good tone and uh, he emphasized pretty good also. Yeah. So after you wrote Rap Bastards, were you like, okay, there are some moments in my life that I haven't, that I wasn't able to express in that, especially when I was an adolescent. So I want to put that into another book. Yeah, I, I wrote, I wanted to write, I wanted to do something different, A, and B, I wanted to do something where it would help young adults in that, in that, in those type of circumstances in this inner city, if you will. And as I talk about it, being the young Irish kid from the, from the Irish town, and then liking this Hispanic girl, which, you know, was kind of frowned upon, if you will. Was it Angelique? That was her name? Angelique. So um, that said, you know, as I talk about it, even in the book and how my, the, the buddy uh, says to him, you know, you're a Catholic Irish kid, what, what's your mother gonna think we're bringing her home, you know? So I wanted to show the difference in the realness uh, and, and what it was like at that time and, and probably still to some certainty in today's era, unfortunately, and what's happened just recently as we know uh with this poor guy dying in uh minneapolis well you talk a lot about in the book about mentors like 
I mean, that curveball at the end with the trainer was like getting with the mom, and then like the mob boss ended up being his dad. Those are those real things that that had happened to you growing up? No, I tr- I I had put that. Those those were spoiler my, alert. Spoiler those, alert, everybody. Those are those are the things where my writing skills and my my thought had come into uh, place in changing things around. Yes. Yep. So when I was reading it. I mean, again, I am not a big reader and I actually really, really enjoyed the book. Like you're going to catch me. I don't know if you know what spark notes are, but that's was kind of my college career. Look up everything on spark notes, man. Just look it up. But I was really fascinated by, because growing up, I was really anger management too. Were you big in anger management growing up? Oh, forget about it. I still am. Unfortunately, um, I've, I've, of course, I've grown up from that a lot, but not totally. Um, I still have anger management problems. Absolutely. Uh, I have to catch myself. I have to control myself. Um, that's just my makeup. And unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And, you know, um, nobody's perfect. And um, uh, I work at it every day. It's, it's a very Irish thing, which a lot of people don't understand. It's very genetic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, I, 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 I really had a real anger management problem when I was a young kid. Um, I think a lot to do with it because, you know, for, it was uh, a laid thing, if you will. My mom was very, very strict and she had a temper on her that was unbelievable. And um, so I faced that when I had done something wrong and uh, I faced it with uh, her total total power and um that said also growing up in Southie at that time it wasn't you know it wasn't it was a good place but it was a tough place to grow up nobody you know if you were thin-skinned you weren't you know then you weren't going to make it too well you know um you know you had to defend yourself you know in the street and stuff and at times and it was it was like the old school days, you know. Now, were you one of the anger management types who was like, were you short tempered, or did you bottle it up and just kind of snap? No, I was I was short tempered, yeah. Um, but sometimes I would be short tempered most of the time. But sometimes I I bottle it up, and then because I'm trying to control myself, and and then I just that's it. <laughs> So, but thank God uh, I'm older and in the sense that I'm able to, uh, to control myself a lot, lot better as a, as an adult. Now, does it, does it feel like at, at this point in your life, like you lived like three separate lives? Is that how it feels for you or? You know, I just had this conversation with my girlfriend, Laurie, and uh, by the age of 21, I felt like I've already lived two lives, believe it or not. Yeah. And now, and now you're what, like in your like late 40s, 50s? You look like you're 46. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, you just took uh, almost almost uh, nine years off my age. So thank you. Yeah. So how many lives do you feel like you've lived now at 55? I don't know. I, I'm I'm... I don't know, at least three now, <laughs> anyhow, you know, 
Yeah, at least three. I mean, you know, from the struggles that I went through and uh, through prison and 12 years of doing time and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, and getting out of jail and, and then, you know, turning my life around and, uh, and. Uh, See, it's, and we'll, uh, we'll get to it a little bit later, but I, when people talk about going to prison for an elongated period of time, they act like 12 years is just 12 years. That's such a long time. Yeah. 12 years is 12 years. And, you know, especially at the time when I went, um, at my time, the only one who had a cell phone were rich people. So of course we, you know, the guys who had money like myself, uh, Whitey and the other, other guys in the crew, if you will, they, uh, we all had them. Uh, if you ever seen the movie, uh, wall street with Michael Douglas, those old phone, phones, mobile phones, those phones were like $2,000 at the time to buy really? at that like time. Oh yeah. Phones? The, it, it was a white one. It was a, a, a Motorola. Was it a flip phone? No, it was a one one piece. Yeah, yeah. And then they had the Radio Shack one. It was it looked like a brick and military type of, you know. So yeah, I I had them all. Yeah, at a young age. So when I get out of prison, you know, and computers, I didn't know what a computer was. I mean, by the time I went to prison and did time and all that, uh, especially, you know. A laptop. I mean, laptop. What's that? You know. Um, so when I get out of prison, um, and I talk about this in Rap Bastards, that um, it was really weird for me because I hear all these people talking, and um, and 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 they got some people have they got phones, and uh, and I'm looking, I'm going, those the, those people following us. I hear them talking. What, you know? Because I didn't realize that phones were that. You know, I mean, I knew there were phones out there, but I didn't know they were that um, abundant, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, that everyone had one, you know, a cell phone. So it kind of freaked me out, to be honest with you, because I thought it was law enforcement following me still. <laughs> was that like a total adjustment for you getting used to using a phone and a laptop? I don't think so, because I, I'm, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, um, I think it's because of my boxing and growing up and adjusting and the, and the things that I uh, had faced growing up. Um, but I adjust to things that I've never faced before pretty rapidly and pretty easily, believe it or not. Um, I remember when I was being driven by uh, the U.S. Marshals to a new location that they were bringing me. And it was a, a brand new place. They wanted to put me there to say that they could hold me there and give me a fair trial and, um, and, and, and stuff. So I was new to opening this place. I was one of the first guys to go there and it was in middle to mass. And, uh, you came from where I came from, uh, Plymouth. Okay. I was in Plymouth and, and holdover. And so I went to Middleton and when I got there, the, 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 the guard was re really strict. He told me, you got to sit down. You heard, I said, excuse me? Soon as, see, there's, there's the anger coming out. I right? can see it in your face right I, now. Really, I said, excuse, well, I said it in front of the U.S. Marshals. The U.S. Marshals treated me like really, really good because they knew I demanded respect. And when I demand respect, I give respect. 
If you don't give me respect, I'm not giving you respect. It's that simple. There's no gray area, you know, um, when it comes to respect. Um, so the, the God at the time didn't show any respect to me. And I had a few choice words for him. And they, the U.S. Marshals are there and they go, they're going to get used to you real quick. They're going to know you real quick. Sure enough, that officer did not press the issue. Uh, that God, I should say. And um, he acted accordingly the way he should, like a gentleman. And because I was doing nothing wrong, uh, he just wanted to show a force. And he, I guess he didn't know what kind of force he was dealing with. <laughs> on the other side, on the flip side. Have you always kind of had an issue with, with like authoritarian figures, like people like telling you what to do? Yes, because my mother was always yelling at me to do something. And if I didn't do it, uh, part of my friend, she'd beat the shit out of me. So, and that's how it was back then. You know, I, trust me, my, we, we, it was not easy uh, getting away with something with my mom back then, I'll tell you that. And it could be any little, it could be something small. So, yeah, she was very, very tough, but she had a hard job raising, uh, you know, four kids and no father and, and working. And she was under stress every day, every day. And it's understood. But she was also a loving mom in the sense that she made sure we had a roof over our head, we were fed, and we had clothing. Was it the best of everything? No, of course not. We, we were poor, you know? What's interesting is the mom and a kid from Southie is very much the opposite. She was just a major alcoholic and like the but, but, Aiden but has also, to like rescue her from throwing up on herself and right. Right. Exactly. So, you know, that's where the writing comes in and you know. So you you're this like semi pro, really promising boxer. When do you start dipping into like the and you talk about in rap asses a little bit but for those who haven't read when do you start dipping into like kind of going down to miami and like thinking about selling drugs so i didn't i didn't i wasn't really dipping into that i went into that it was like diving Full into speed. A pool. it was it was di like diving into a pool immediately um and making that big splash if you will um so i had well, I was boxing here. Um, I was out, my first professional fights were in Los Angeles, and I fought at the Olympic Auditorium and stuff like that. And then I fought Reseda, California, um, and that was my first professional fight. And um, so, anyway, I came back from California, and I started training here, and I started training with Vinnie Paz and stuff like that uh, in Rhode Island. I chose uh, ride down there. But at the same time, I needed a few dollars in my pocket. So I started dabbling in to the, uh, with the guys in the neighborhood that were running things. And then um, eventually, you know, um, I started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I started climbing that ladder. And of course, I had, I had a few parallels going on at the time, you know, two at that time. But uh, as time went on, you know, I had boxing and I had the drugs and, um, and uh, you know, everybody was a weekend pottier at that time, you know, um, 
So weekends were money makers for, 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 the, uh, for the guys. And um, so I learned through them and then eventually I became their boss. Now, how old are you when, when things start getting bigger and bigger? I started, geez, I want to say uh, 20 years old. Yeah, Dude, 20 years no. old. Yeah, 20 years old where I was going, getting, yeah, doing big things. Yeah, and driving to Miami and setting deals up in Miami and buying the kilos of cocaine and, and all that stuff. Yeah, and, now, what and also, and at that time, eventually becoming one of the, 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 the lead guys in, in the organization for, for, uh, for Whitey and, and, and his, uh, that he was getting paid from. Uh, one of the guys got kicked out and when he got kicked out, I was put in his place. And that guy since dead, he actually testified against Whitey. Um, he died of cancer. And um, they had called, they added me on the list to go to, uh, to testify against Whitey, but I had done so many um, interviews on CNN and stuff saying, um, A, I'm not going to testify. And uh, if I have to go back to prison, I will uh, for contempt, if you will. And um, I said, but who knows, maybe I'll change my mind and testify. And I don't think it would be good for either side. So I kind of played that, that hand, if you will. And um, my lawyer, Tony Cardinelli at the time called the head prosecutor and said, you don't need him and he, you should take him off your list and you have enough people doing what you need or what you want. And uh, he's not that type of guy and uh, he's a bit of a maverick. And that was exactly the words that were used in court um, by the guy who was uh, originally the, the boss of the org, uh, drug organization for Whitey. And, uh, and he talked about how they recruited me. And what was uh, his name? His name was Shea too. His last name was Shea. His name was Billy Shea. And um, I no don't relation. mention, no, no relation. And um, uh, I don't mention his name in the book for rap acid. Some names I changed because I didn't want to give anybody up because nobody was uh, convicted for those crimes at that time. Um, so I just changed the names, you know, but people who I could talk about legitimately without them getting hurt. Of course I used their name. So, if so he had... called me, he called me a maverick is what my point is. He said, yeah, we recruited Red Shea and Red Shea was a bit of a, it was quite a maverick in his own way. So I just had that, 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 that attitude of being me and doing what I'm going to do and, and that's it. And, and uh, not caring a lot, which wasn't, uh, some ways wasn't too smart for sure as a young man. But I was trying to prove myself. That's the whole thing. That's why I was such a maverick. And uh, Whitey took advantage of that. He definitely did. He actually said one time to my boxing trainer, he said, you know, most people are trying to break out of jail. This young guy is trying to break in. That was prior to him. Um, maybe a, probably about a year prior to me getting recruited. So when you say you didn't 
you wouldn't testify. Wasn't that so weird for you? Cause you coming off 12 years of just being stuck in the can, you were totally willing to go back to jail. Because it was my beliefs and my integrity that I didn't, you know, I was going to honor what I believe in. And, um, uh, some people like, you know, that's a great question because some people say, well, everybody else ratted. Why didn't he rat? He's stupid. No, I'm not stupid. I have beliefs. I have integrity. And if there's any, if there's a soldier out there that's fighting in a foxhole, I can guarantee you I'm one of the guys that that love to have in a foxhole with them because I wouldn't run. I just wouldn't. So was it hurtful to you when some of the other guys in the organization who were cooperating with the FBI weren't, weren't as loyal as you? They wanted me to testify against Whitey and Stevie Fleming, and um, I wouldn't do it. And um, when, I, when, when I found out that they were um, informants with the FBI and that they knew what was going on about the investigation against me and the other, other people, and they used, basically knew all about it. And um, so hindsight's 2020 and things were popping off in my head and conversations that I had with Whitey and saying he knew all the time. He let me go down. He let me take the heat, the fall. And of course, I was the youngest guy at that position. So he basically set me up and, and put me in that position because he knew I was young and he knew, well, if he gets time, he'll get so much time, but he's still young. And that was his thought process, uh, obviously. And, um, and he used his own people to save his own soul, of course, which makes him what? King Rat. Was it, were, did you feel hurt at the time? Because... The well, way you kind I'll of describe you. it in Rap Bastards is like there was a real loyalty between everybody and it was really a brotherhood at a certain point. I, I, I'll tell you what. I honored him. I honored him. And I, I was willing to give my life. That's just the way it is. Um, growing up on the streets of Southie, you just don't talk. You don't say anything. You take your lumps and bumps. Uh, as when, even if someone else can't, that's what we're taught. We were taught. And, um, that was, that was basically it. So I was willing to do whatever it took. And, you know, I was threatened with, you know, uh, 25 to life in prison. And like I say in the book, when I was being threatened and interrogated, I said, you know, when they said 25 years or more, 40, 40 years or whatever it was, um, it's been so long now. Um, I said, it doesn't get any worse than life, does it? Aren't you glad you're out now? Thank God. I thank God every day. Thank God I'm outside and have a beautiful girlfriend and doing well. So when you were just quick rewind, when you were coming up and you said you were getting bigger and bigger, was it a rush for you? Cause you had never really touched money like that. Was that like, you know, it's funny because, um, I'll be honest with you. It's almost like being, um, for me, I, the best way I can describe this, it's a, almost like being a drug addict or being an addict, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever, uh, any type of addict, uh, if you will. I should not just uh, say a dry guy. I should say any addict, um, to be fair. Um, 
it's like being an addict. You, um, and even today, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Um, it's like, wow, you get that urge. You want that, uh, that strength, that power and, and that money and, 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 and all that back, you know, and, and, you know, it's just, you know, yeah, it was, it was definitely, it was at times it was definitely a, a, a adrenaline, uh, high for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you still get it now? Uh, I do, but I control myself. Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It's like, like I said, it's like being an addict, um, you know, but I know it's not the right thing. It's not the right thing. And I've written about that and, uh, and, uh, I'm lucky to be the way I am and I'm fortunate and I'm blessed. And, uh, I recommend everybody to, to take the, not the, not the easy way, but the, uh, the right way. See, I've never been a drug dealer in my life. Um, except one time I tried to sell an eighth of weed and <laughs> I, I did it unsuccessfully and I had to give it back to the guy I bought it from. So I have no, I have no clue what that's like, but I do know what it's like building something, especially what we have going on here. So I can imagine that when things start moving for you, even though it's drugs, it's just like, it's exciting. Like yeah, well, every day is a new something, right? It's like building a, a, a business, actually. You're absolutely right about that. So you start out with, uh, you know, with, with grams and you graduate to, to ounces and, and so forth and so on and half ounces, ounces and, and, and half a kilos and then kilos and then multiple kilos and customers and people who work for you and, and distributing. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's a business. It really is, it, you know. It's not the right business, of course, but it's it is a business. It is business minded, and um, and I, I had a I had a big business. I did, you know, when you're traveling to Florida and uh, and traveling back with uh, kilos of cocaine in the car that are multiple kilos, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, of kilos, you know, monthly. A lot of miles on that car, man. A lot of money. <laughs> I'm sure. So when, so when you would pick up from Miami, you would bring it back to Southie and then your drugs would probably be all over Southie and Boston. I mean, Coke was a rich I, person's I, drug. Yeah. Well, for us back in that time, it was a weekend drug. It wasn't like, you know, like, um, you know, everybody it wasn't, you weren't on the, the damn thing all week long, you know? Um, Maybe some people were, but uh, but that said, it was a it was a potty drug at that time because it was you know, eighties um, and and late eighties and early nineties and stuff, you know, it was all potty stuff, you know. So um, most of the time it was a weekend drug, and and there was a lot of a lot of cocaine being snorted <laughs> on the weekend. Have you seen the movie Blow? Yes. Yeah. Is it similar? Is that like fantasized or? It, it's similar. Yeah, it's similar. Um, and a matter of fact, I, I met Johnny Depp, uh, hung out with him uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Different hairstyle and, and black mask compared to Blow, though. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hey, yeah. What, what's your favorite Southie movie of all time? 
Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have a favorite Southie movie. I mean, to be honest with you, about Southie, um, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't particularly care for the movies because I, you know, I lived the real deal. I was the real deal, so. I'm like, this ain't the real deal to me, you know? So when you I saw mean, Departed, were you like, this is bullshit? Well, I was, in, I was a part of Departed, if you will. Uh, I worked with Mark Wahlberg on set and, and stuff like that and uh, gave my input to him for his character and stuff like that. And uh, it was a great experience. And I thanked him so much for, uh, for allowing me to do that. And um, I learned so much from it also. Um, it was a blast. We had a great time. and. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, Mark was a, a little bit of a mentor to me in that sense, because I was pretty much freshly home, uh, not, uh, not too long after I get out of prison and, um, um, I was still on probation and I was able to travel with him, uh, uh, with, with request, uh, to the probation department. And, um, one day Mark says to me, well, we're walking in, in New York. He said, you know, uh, Johnny, he said, you, 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 uh, you know, just want you to know this, that you're a winner. I looked at him, I says, what do you mean? He says, you're home, he said, and you're not in that life anymore. And you, and, and you did your honorable thing. He said, you served your time for the things that you've done wrong. He said, and that's an honorable man. Yeah. So at that time, he was a bit of uh, uh, of a mentor, if you bit, if you will, and I appreciated that immensely from him. And he was very good to me. I can imagine coming twelve years out of prison, your confidence is low, and then you got someone major like that just bigging you up. Must have just been a huge boost. Yeah, I mean. I wasn't, my confidence wasn't really that low because, um, but it was, um, I should say it was, uh, because I was getting a lot of offers while I was in prison, believe it or not, uh, to tell my story. And I just wasn't ready to do that. And as a matter of fact, Mark wanted to come visit me two years prior to that. And um, I denied the visit from him. I wasn't ready to speak because I just, I never spoke. I didn't speak about anything like that. And I wasn't ready to do that. And it's funny because when I decided to do it, I did some research, thought about it, talked to friends uh, and stuff like that. And, and um, um, I just thought, why not tell my story instead, st instead of someone else telling my story? And um, I wanted it to be the real deal. Has it, is it tough for you now to still like do media and talk about it? No, no, not anymore. I've, I've opened up pretty good. Like when we started writing uh, Rap Bastards, I was working construction and I was um, working like 12, 14 hour days uh, in construction. And then I, afterwards I'd go with my friend, Fran Hurley, uh, who was one of my- Shout out to Fran for making this happen. Yeah. And a uh, great guy, great friend. Um, another guy who um, I look up to uh, be because of um, 
being like a mentor, taking me in and making sure that, you know, I had a life that was on the right path, if you will. So that said, um, we started, we started writing the book and um, we got to, we, we met with uh, publishers and stuff like that after the fact in New York and, um, and Mark was in the meetings with us. He gave, he, he went as far as the meetings and helped push the book for me, um, which was unheard of for an, uh, an actor of his caliber to go out of his way for five hours, five hours out of his way. I mean, it was amazing that he, he, he cared that much uh, because he wanted to see me do well and change my life and, uh, and do the right thing. And uh, so a lot of gratitude. Um, but so we started writing the book, me and Franny at his office after I worked. And um, um, Franny would say, <laughs> it's so funny, Franny would say, trying to get something out of you, anything out of you, asking you any type of question is like pulling teeth. It's like pulling teeth, he says. So I laughed about it. I said, well, I'm so closed mouth. I said, I, you know, what do you want me to tell you? So eventually I started coming out of my uh, cocoon, my shell, and, um, and we started uh, making some progress. And then we went to, into the meetings and Hopper and Collins ended up taking the book on. And um, I got represented by um, two agents, one in Los Angeles, the first one, and then uh, a New York agent for the book. And um, that was at uh, the Endeavor agency that Mark belonged to at the time, which is no longer merged with William Mar uh, Morris. Uh, so that said, we, uh, we went forward with the book and they wanted somebody of uh, experience that has written before. And we brought a guy in named Michael Coffey, who did a fantastic job with us. So we all made a good team together and, uh, and we wrote a New York Times bestseller. Now, when you were peeling back the stories with Fran, was it, was it therapeutic? Cause you had bottled it up for so long. Like, dude, I lived the well, it's funny. craziest streak ever. Great question. Great question. Um, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist, so, <laughs> so I'm going to put it my, my way. Um, it was not therapeutic. It was not therapeutic. It, at times I, I was emotional, um, mentally and, um, and, uh, angry. Um, but that said, um, I guess to get to that higher place and better place, you need to go through that. If you will, I imagine, uh, you know, I mean, it helped me in that sense to get through it in that sense by, uh, by fighting through all the anger and, and those uh, uh, barriers, if you will, instead of suppressing them. Do you ever have moments now where you're like, wow, I've really lived a one-on-one -on -one life. Like there's no one can really tell this story. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And thank you for that. Um, yeah wild man so 
what was it like when you started realizing the feds were on you? Were you just petrified? Like, oh my God. I, 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 I want to tell you, I was very well schooled in the streets when it came to that. Um, and uh, I would ask Whitey about different uh, cars and people that were in them cars. And he would tell me who they were. He would tip me off. So Whitey played the car, the boat, the bo uh, both sides really well. And all along, uh, and he was even playing me very well, telling me how to handle myself and what not to do and how to do it and stuff like that. He was schooling me and doing that. So um, I was so well-versed in spotting um, um, agents, if you will, um, undercover agents. I was so well versed. At one time, I had seven cars following me at once through Southie. And then one car had, uh, they must have, had, they had a switch obviously in the car where they had, it was in the evening, they had two headlights and then they turned, turn, must turn one headlight on only. So when you, when I looked behind me, I'd see only one headlight. So I, maybe that ain't the car that's still following me, which it was. Um, but I had a penchant on, on catching them and they actually asked me how, how we had to bring agents in from around the country to follow you because you spotted every one of our agents. How did you do that? It was just, a, it was just a, a knack that I, I, I instinct that I, uh, that I, that I had and, and I concentrated on it and, uh, and I concentrated on a lot of things, if you will, um, to protect myself. and. Um, yeah, I mean, there were times when a guy went by the store, he was an agent, and um, I was standing with a friend of mine. I goes, that guy's an agent. He's working at, a, um, at the time, Newman Flanagan's office, which is organized crime uh, office, and he's working in junction with the DEA. And he goes, no, no, no. I said, oh, oh, yeah, you want me to prove you wrong? I, excuse me, excuse me. I ran up to the car. Excuse me, excuse me. The guy stopped. I said, um, and I named him, I named his name and I, um, and I said, <laughs> I named his name to him and I said, and, you, and I told him where he was from. I said, isn't that true? And he goes, he looked at me, he was angry. He goes, you're a smart guy, Red. So the guy I was standing with was shocked. So I had a penchant on, um, on, on I don't know how, but I did. And I had a sense of who was an officer and who wasn't. It, it's really interesting hearing these stories when it seems like everything was happening in Southie, but Southie is so small. Like, did I know. everyone know everybody? Well, well, to be honest with you, it's the, it was at the time, if you think about Boston in its sense, um, Southie was the biggest Irish enclave in Boston. Southie's bigger than Charlestown, you know, uh, which would be the, that was predominantly Irish, right, Charlestown? So, yeah, I mean, Southie was big, the biggest Irish community enclave, yeah. Now, at the time, did you like the clout that came with being associated, like the attention that came with it? Of course, of course, um, you know, because you, uh, people showed respect and um, just as well as they did with Whitey, they showed them respect. Even if they didn't like them, they still show them the respect, right? 
But I mean, I've had people contact me back then. Uh, they had problems with kids around the house, you know, hanging around the house, uh, being noisy and stuff like that or whatever. And uh, homeowners and stuff, uh, property owners. And I would drive by and I'd go, hey, fellas, too much noise around here. Uh, do me a favor, hang out somewhere else. They go, absolutely, no problem. So I had people in the neighborhood that would reach out like that. And if they needed a favor like that, I would do that for them, absolutely. And, we'll, and, and I learned that through Whitey, of course. Now, how did girls treat you back then when you're 20 and like you're like a known criminal? Did girls like it or were girls put off by it? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't you know, there was probably some girls. I, I don't, I don't know. Cause I never really, uh, I didn't really notice or cared about that to be honest with you. Um, but I, I would imagine that, yeah, there was, you know, there were, there's plenty of girls out there like bad boys. Right. So, you know, call it like it is. Um, but you, but uh, you were like, you were like bad. You weren't just like, Hey, like I got a, like a, leather jacket and a Harley you were like really you were yeah. falling man I know I know but I I, I like to be a little I don't want to I don't want to Lori's around the corner she's listening yeah no <laughs> no Laurie don't care Laurie Laurie knows she's a she knows how much I love her so no but um that said um yeah I you know you know I, I grew up as and eventually became a boss so yeah I mean and uh, yeah, you know, it was <laughs> it was a, an experience to say itself. And um, uh, at times it was really good, and sometimes it wasn't. To be honest with you, sometimes I'd say I need to get out. I need to get out of this life. I've said that to myself prior to getting indicted, because um, I wasn't uh, um, involved at the time with a, a young lady who I actually loved at the time. And, um, and I wanted to change my life and I was thinking about it and I wanted to go back to boxing. And, uh, I talk about this in the book and I knew the heat was on and stuff and rap bastards and I had plenty of money, you know, so I was set to do whatever I wanted actually. Um, and, and have plenty of money to back me. Um, and so I wanted to go back to boxing. I mentioned it to Whitey and, and, um, he told me, he told me no. And, you know, he didn't know boxing like I did. I grew up boxing since the age of five. And, uh, of course, of course, I didn't like that response by any means. And um, so years later, after all this is what come out, now I understand. And at that time, my, at that time, I, I, I felt even then, like, why is he saying that? Why is he, you know, he said, you're going to be on TV and boxing. They're going to, people are going to see your face and you know, you want to keep a low profile. You want to keep, you know, making money. I'm saying to myself, something didn't, it just didn't the vibe for me when he said that to me at that time, I knew something wasn't right. I just knew it then, but I was, you know, I didn't know for sure. Uh, and um, I mean, and he was the boss, right? And uh, and I was showing my loyalty and my respect, and uh, if you will, my uh, my love. 
I don't want to devote too much of the episode to this, but there's um, Southie people. This a stereotype for Southie is that it's like systemically racist for however long. Is that kind of something you grew up around? Of course. I mean, I grew up in the one that was forced busing days. So when I see the rioting now, this this horrific rioting that's happening now in the last five days with the death of this. Uh, uh, horrible death uh, of this um, this man. Um, I seen those things. I seen it. I seen them when I was a young man in Southie and the rioting and stuff that had taken place. And um, but on a racial note, and um, um, so I grew up in that. Yeah, you know, I know what it's like. I, again, there's another layer of my life that uh, I experienced that many, many haven't. Um, um, but it was, uh, it was a sad, that was a sad time to believe, to be honest with you. What about so when I talk about, when I talk about race in prison, um, yes, you have your different races and stuff like that, prison, of course, and your cliques and all that, you know, and, um, but for me, when I talk about in Rat Bastards, I talk about um, race. Uh, for me, it was always about not color, a creed, um, uh, race. It was about being a man and 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 not being a an informant and taking your punishment for the things that you did wrong and accepting that and honoring that and. Uh, and and not putting that on someone else's shoulders to lessen your your wrongs, and so I I I I honored people like that, and I still do, and um, I don't care what race, creed, or color they are. Can you just for those who are uninformed, because we have a, a pretty younger audience, can you just explain what the forced busing is i know what it is but yeah forced busing was um was implemented by the federal government and a judge actually enforced it and his name was judge garrity at the time and um they took black kids from black neighborhoods because back then when i grew up it was you know it was it wasn't mixed neighborhoods like it pretty much is now even roxbury has the mixed uh portions um, so it was old school. It was like you would watch uh, what, like uh, a movie from back in the day where it's different uh, Italian neighborhoods, Irish neighborhoods, uh, black neighborhoods. Um, so they started taking the black kids or the minorities and bringing them to, uh, to, the, to, to the white neighborhoods and mixing the black and white together to go to school together. And um, at that time, it was like oil and water, if you will. I mean, because, you know, everybody was like, hey, you know, we, we have our own community and this is who we are. And, and I get that, you know, and in some ways, you know, um, it's good that everyone gets along and everyone can, you know, live with each other now and together and around each other, which, which is a beautiful thing. But in some ways, it's a, it's a loss where you don't have your authentic whole Italian neighborhood, your authentic whole entire Irish neighborhood, your whole entire Jewish neighborhood, um, you know, those authentic 
failing neighborhoods, if you will. And um, Southie's no longer like that, of course, as we know. I would say the North, the North End's still pretty Italian, right? Yes, it is. Yep, it is, but not totally. There are a lot of... Um, not like lot it of, was. No, not even close. Not even close. <laughs> Trust me. But it, it's still pretty good. But they, they do that is because they, they, you know, I mean, they do it because of, um, you know, they, they, that's how they make their money down there in them businesses. So that's actually a great pivot. Um, what do you think about the change in Southie now? Because, like, all my friends graduate college and the first place they move is Southie. It's like a young person's town now. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's really uh, – it's, it, there's a lot of young people that are living in now. And it's actually, it's actually come a long way, Southie. And it's um, – I'll tell you, it's becoming gentrified, that's for sure, and um, to say the least. And I've actually – like, even on the waterfront, who, who ever thought in the waterfront that you would see all these big, beautiful buildings and stuff, which I've been a part of, by the way, uh, working in construction. And uh, I never thought in my day – how full circle it would be for me to come back into my neighborhood and to be able to build buildings and major buildings and in, in, in my own neighborhood that I grew up in and that I had drove the streets of and ran and walked and everything else and, and ate uh, down on the waterfront years back uh, in some of the restaurants. So do you like the change in Southie? I do. I think it's, uh, I think it's come a long way. I think, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I like old school stuff too. I like originality, um, authentic stuff, if you will, um, because a lot of like young people, they never experienced that in their life. The real original authentic stuff, you know, and, and of a neighborhood. And I grew up in that and that's who, who I am, you know, and how I grew up and what made me who I am today. Now, you kind of talked about in a kid from Southie, but is how Southie was structured back then, was it that the wealthiest people lived at the top of the hill and the projects were at the bottom? Is that true? There's something like that. Yeah, pretty, pretty close. Um, there was a lower end and an upper end, and the upper end was a city point, and those, the people who lived up there were a little more, uh, had a few more dollars than the people who lived down the lower end. Yep. Now, where was everyone... Um, where were you hanging out when you were associated? Was it right on that rotary right there where that fish market is? Yeah, I lived, I lived right across the park in the projects and it was old colony projects. So I was running around, I was hanging in out there when I was a kid, we all, you know, we had our own little group that we hang, hung out with and stuff like that. And we'd wait sometimes on the corner and there was a place called Bell's Market that's even still there. And, um, uh, you know, we had no money and of course it was the projects and we would wait and uh, we'd see a truck pull up full of cigarettes and cottons of cigarettes. And as soon as the guy get out of the truck and he went into the store, we, we'd open up the back of the truck and take some cottons of cigarettes and then hide them and then wait till he's gone and then go back and sell the cigarettes for less than what they would have got them for. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one of the ways that we made a few bucks as young kids. You flip. So, I mean, you know, if you think about it, that's old school, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like back in the day stuff, you know, good stuff, you know, OG stuff. Now, when you look back, did you always kind of know you had a sales ability? Like when you were younger? I, I you know, I didn't, I never knew what, a, how, how much of a sales ability I ever had, but 
you're right about that because I started selling even weed at the age of 15. I mean, I was selling bags of weed and, and then, you know, even prior to that, there were people that come in and look for weed and to come into projects and drive in and say, hey, look at some, some weed, you know, like suburbanites and stuff like that, or the Newton kids or something like that, you know, if you will. And I and I'd go, oh, yeah, I'll be right back down. Of course, I had no weed, but I go up in the, uh, in the house, into the projects. I'd say, you just wait here. I go up there and I get a bag of oregano and I throw the oregano in it in a baggie and then I'd pull it up real quick nicely and then I'd say all right hey you'll get to get going you know cops are gonna go they're all around here and I'd pass them the bag of oregano and and take their money and say boy these people are real dumb from the suburbs aren't they oh <laughs> and they probably claim they got so high yeah uh, yeah they, they they probably didn't want to admit that they that they fell for that did you ever I don't really know how the cocaine game works but did you ever break it off with baking soda or something like that, or like some sort of like powdery substance. Break it off? Uh, you mean? Well, you mix it, right? So it's not as pure. Yeah. So you mean cutting it? Cutting I've never done cocaine. It's called cutting the cocaine. It's called cutting the cocaine. And please, this is not a tutorial by any means. I don't want anybody thinking that you know they can go out and learn how to, uh, they're learning here, and I'm teaching them how to do the cocaine business. Because that's not what I'm doing. But you ask me a question, I'll be, I'm glad to answer that question, if you will. We're not um, trying to indict anybody. Yeah, we're not trying to teach anybody here like that. Yeah, that's not who, that's not us. So, but I will answer that. So, um, what we, what I used to use in cutting it was an isotol, and it basically it's a, it's like a, um, it's kind of like a sugary taste, but it's also like a supplement. And um, I used to get it at the GNC store and they would sell it in jars and, and stuff like that. And of course, I'd buy every one of them that they had, if you will. And I'd use that to cut the cocaine. And basically, it was a, like a vitamin supplement, if you will. Um, so it wasn't harmful, uh, but the cocaine was. <laughs> so I was trying to be a little uh, uh, healthy, if you will. And was there a benefit in using the isotol over a baking soda? Is it just because it's not? Yeah, baking soda is no good. Baking soda burn your nose and all that stuff like that. You didn't with the isotol. You didn't. You didn't. There was no burn or anything, and you did, it didn't hurt you, if you will. Baking soda would isn't would be bad. Um, but yeah, and then there were. I would I would uh, break it down in that sense and. And that way, when you break it down with the inositol, you're not giving out, um, you know, they're not getting, at that time, they're not getting pure cocaine. And, um, and, uh, and that's a good thing because you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to kill anybody and have anybody die. Or, you know what I mean, um, you know, because then that would put a red flag and a, and a, and a, and a bad thing on your shoulder then, you know, because then now you're going to put more heat on yourself. You, you're basically just trying to run a business, make money and not watch anybody uh, go down. Now, one part that I talked about with the producers that was interesting is that you never, you did, you tried your own product a couple of times, but you're like, this is not for me. <laughs> That's funny. That just came up today from, from my girlfriend. She says, I go, so we were talking about uh, that a little, touched upon that a little bit. And, um, and I said to her, I said, um, 
well, I tried it once and I tried it twice, but that like that second time that I tried it, I tried it with professionals, if you will. These guys were pros at it. And um, as I call them, and uh, of course I was not, but it was my cocaine and I supplied the cocaine and we went out on a binging cocaine weekend. And um, when I tell you that we had more cocaine that we could, we could have, we did, it was an ending, never ending supply. Um, I was so high that I didn't know how to handle myself. I thought I was going to commit suicide, to be honest with you. Um, I, 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 thought, I thought everybody was watching me. I was so paranoid. I, uh, I had no appetite. I couldn't drink. I couldn't eat. Uh, so I Freaking drank out. NyQuil. I drank NyQuil to c try to come down. And that was my, my last time that I ever tried cocaine in my life. Thank See, God. That's the Irish mania. So I'm the same way because when I smoke weed, I, I don't smoke weed anymore because I freak way out because, you know, there's something very genetic about Irish people in the OCD. And I'm sure you have a little bit of it too, but, but I could imagine if I did Coke, I'd probably burn down all of Southie. Oh yeah. Well, I was, uh, trust me. I was in, I was not myself. I was, I was, a, it was a, it was definitely a, uh, a scary uh, inner body, outer body, however you want to look at it, moment for me. Um, and I, 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 I was so high that it took me at least a day, a full day, uh, uh, 24 hours at least, I should say, to, to, to actually start to come back. That's how much cocaine I did. I'm lucky I wasn't dead. That was at Miami Coke. Oh, yeah. Impure, no cut, no isotol, no cut in it at all, right, right off the brick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, um, I just want to give my producers a chance to ask a question. That all right? Of course. Hey, let's let's start with Brendan. Okay. Uh, hey, John, I got a question about prison. Um, I'm wondering what is something you took away from prison um, that made you a better person, and also what is one piece of prison reform that we can do today to make it a better place somewhere that actually rehabilitates people? Great question. And thank you for answering that, uh, for asking that. Um, so that said, one of the things that I took away from prison is that um, when I found out about Whitey um, being uh, an informant and and, and stuff like that, knowing that um, I gave my life to him and honored him, and not only him, but the, the, I honored the, uh, the code, if you will. Um, it was heart-wrenching, to be honest with you. And um, after that, I said to myself, and pretty instant, instantly, because I think it's the fighter in me, because you know, at any second or any second, you could be hurt in a fight and you need to know how to adjust to that immediately. So my boxing background helped me out a lot with that. And um, that said, um, so my loyalty was not to Whitey, but my loyalty was to myself now. So when I thought about my loyalty being to myself now, um, 
I thought about not being, not uh, giving someone the chance to, to uh, not giving someone the chance to, uh, to, ever, to ever hurt me again in that sense and to be in control of my own destiny in life and, and, um, and knowing that, uh, that where I was was uh, hopefully if I get the hell out of there. Um, um, and that's how I thought because, you know, it's prison, it was tough. Um, anything could happen in prison. I mean, you know, you could uh, have a quarrel and uh, a beef in prison and, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, who knows how that might end up. Uh, you could end up hurt or you could end up dead. And um, uh, that said, um, that was the biggest thing I learned that surviving, being true to myself now, honoring myself, and uh, getting out of prison and doing the right thing. Um, so that said, I don't think it gets any bigger than that or better. Um, you know, um, the other thing is the reform part of it. Well, I'll tell you what, they have halfway houses and stuff like that and that people go to. I was not allowed a halfway house for whatever reason. Um, my, my, they said my record or my background and things in my background or whatever it might have been, I have no idea um, that I was not allowed a halfway house, that I needed to leave prison from prison, which was fine with me. Um, it was fine with me because I didn't want to go to a halfway house and be told what to do from somewhere else. I just wanted to finish my time out, walk out that uh, door of that prison and say, and, and, and not look behind me at that prison and um, not to be not to have to listen to new rules somewhere somewhere else and have something someone say to me well I'm in a halfway house if you don't behave or if you don't follow the rules here you're going back to prison so for me it was a it was a blessing they did me a favor I'll stay to prison I'll walk all the way to the door till my time is up walk out that prison door and um, and and then that's it uh, so the reform part of it is that they send people out into the into the uh, to the new world, and there's nobody there for them. Some of these people, and even though there's a halfway house, they tell you, "Well, you got to go get a job," and they force you to go get a job. But you know, it's not easy for a person who has a who's on a uh, still on a halfway house, which is like probation, but you're still in prison basically, and. Um, not many people are taken convicted uh if you get a background of, of of being you know conviction um not people many people are taking them people on i so okay let me go into the apple store and try to get a job uh have you ever been convicted of a a, a felon in the last five years or 10 years or whatever it might be you know of course i, ju I just get out of prison so how are they supposed to get a job and, and how do we implement these people in changing their lives? That's why it was so wonderful that I was able to get in the union, uh, construction union, because I didn't hold that over my head, A. And B, the other thing was is that I had, um, I got lucky and had the ability with like guys like Mark Wahlberg and Fran Hurley, good people that, uh, that, 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 that showed me respect and honored me. And uh, 
So my point is this, that we, that to reform people isn't just reforming and sending them to prison and then sending them out the door and tell them, hey, go get a job. And you have to go look for a job. And if you don't come back with the, the information that you've been at these places, then you know what? You're in violation. That's wrong. That's wrong. You, there should be a program where they have businesses that they're dealing with businesses and saying, we're trying to implement these, uh, these people back into society. And we want them to change their lives. Yes, they have backgrounds. Yes, they've committed crimes, but they paid their dues already. And we don't want people going back into that life again. We want to see them move forward and to get over those hurdles. And that's a big hurdle, big, big hurdle for them to get over. So maybe there's a, a farm where these businesses, whether it be an Apple store or, or, or Starbucks, um, where they can go in and they, and they can apply for a job that they will take these people on, that they will honor these people that are trying to change their lives. Well, there's a stigma with it, you know? Yeah, a stigma of course. With, with felons and, um, yeah, it's really, that's a very, very interesting point. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Riley, why don't we have you ask a question next? It's Riley. Hey. So you're very open about your past and it's so interesting. I was wondering if you ever worry if it will catch up to you. Um, to what, what, to what way and what, um, I don't understand. Actually, I, yeah. Uh, I, I'll build on that for Riley. I think what, what she's trying to ask is, um, do you, are you a believer in karma whatsoever? So, Listen, it, it, that's a great question because I talk about that again in the end of the book of Rap Bastards. And I talk about my, my uh, faith. And of course, being Irish, I'm uh, predominantly Irish Catholics, right? And, um, you know, I, I, I have people that say to me, you know, God's forgiving and, uh, and, uh, and stuff like that. And uh, you paid your dues to, to society for the wrongs that you've done. But it's really not up to anybody in my eyes. I mean, anybody could be kind and show empathy and, but uh, the opposite. But that's just an opinion of people who we are. If you have faith in, in God, um, the only time you'll know that in my eyes, you know, is when my time is to be had off this earth. So that would be up to God to make that decision. Nobody else. Cause there's no one bigger than God. Do you still go to church? Um, I have gone to church. I used to go to church, church with Mark Wahlberg especially when we were in, uh, traveling around in New York and stuff like that in Los Angeles. And um, Mark is an Advent Catholic, goes to church. Um, and uh, I don't go to church like that no more. Um, but I still um, 
have my faith and I believe in my Catholic faith. Um, but no, I, I don't go to church like I should. And maybe that's something I'm going to be working on soon. It's just boring sometimes, man, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so the funny thing about it is um, you talk about church and being a Catholic and, you know, I was away with a Catholic priest in, in prison and um, he was sent there. He was from New York and his name is, and I talk about him, Pat, Pat, uh, Father Patrick Mahoney and uh, Maloney. And uh, as a matter of fact, I just spoke with him a few weeks back and I had a question for him and uh, he answered it. And uh, I talked about maybe uh, getting married in the cathedral um, someday. Uh, that would be magnificent for me to be able to walk down in St. Patrick's Cathedral and, and honoring uh, uh, the one that I, I choose, Laurie, for her hand, if you will. Big surprise, man. Yeah, exactly. But um, he said, absolutely, can make that happen tomorrow, Johnny. And um, uh, so, but the pandemic hit, and here we are, and but there'll be time. It'd be awesome. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be awesome. It will, it will be awesome. Something, and I'll, Lexi and Slugs, I'll get to you guys real quick, but something uh, somewhat Catholic is a lot of Catholics believe in fate and destiny. When you were growing up, did, did you imagine, did you visualize your success even though it was obviously illegal, did you visualize that? Like, you know, you knew you kind of had something in you. Did, is this how you kind of pictured things going? It's funny you ask that. And that's a great question because I've always imagined that, um, I, I, that I would be successful at something, whether it would be boxing or even in the, um, even in the, uh, the underworld and, uh, organized crime. Um, because I always tried to strive and being the best at what I did and whatever I did. And whether that was boxing or in organized crime or, uh, or just, you know, playing a regular sport, if you will, uh, maybe even cooking a meal, uh, just anything. I, ju I always want to be the best at it. And um, um, that's just who I am. Competitive. Um, not so much competitive. I just want to be the best at it, you know, and, and always do the best job. And, and that could be any job, man. I mean, it could be scrubbing a floor with the toothbrush and cleaning the, the mold off the, the tile. I, I mean, I, I, if I do it, I want to do it right. I want to make sure it's done right and do it the best I can. Hey, Slugs, you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, so I read the book, A Kid from Southie, and I really enjoyed it. And throughout the book, there are like a lot of lessons that the main character was learning and a lot of lessons for the reader to take away from it. But I was wondering, what is the biggest lesson you want people who read Rat Bastards and A Kid from Southie to take away from your story? Thank you for the question. Um, well, out of both of them, um, I wanted to show the, the, the real essence of that life and 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 for people to to understand the best way to do that is showing the real essence right um so that said i wanted people to understand that 
and rap bastards that, um, you know, if you do these things that are wrong, A, you're giving people uh, the ability to use you and, um, and, and uh, you know, in the wrong ways, you know, and, uh, and that um, not everybody survives. And that it's a life that uh, is real, was real, and um, and people should really uh, understand that and know that uh, it wasn't a good life, and not to get in and not to get involved in it. Hey, can I ask a question? Yes. Hi, John. My question is, um, seeing that you talk a lot about rats in both of your book, um, how do you feel about modern rats today? People who are whistleblowers like Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, people like that. These, these producers are ballsy, man. No, no I, lo I love the question because... I love it too. I love the question and uh, I love that. I love the question and I love the challenge. Um, it's really not much of a challenge for me to be honest with you. Uh, I don't want to sound, <laughs> I don't want to sound, sound too uh, ignorant or cocky, if you will. Um, no, uh, I think, I think that all of them, um, you know, listen, I understand the government more than anybody. I went through the, through the system myself and how the government can be, but I'll tell you, they, they hurt our government. They heard our they heard our security of our country, is what they really did by giving that information out to other people in other countries, and um, and uh, they weren't honorable. And no matter how bad you might be mad at your country, as so no matter how mad I was at Whitey, I never dishonored and who I was with my integrity. And I feel those people that you know. There's probably a lot of people who will disagree with me, but they gave our country up. And I didn't, and that is what I don't like. I think the other side of the argument for them would also be that they were providing a service for the American people though, like Snowden. Yeah, but you know what? In all reality, they were really hurting our intelligence community that protects us against foreign influences, if you will. Um, and they were, they were giving, they were helping them, you know? So when you, when you think back to like everything you've been through and just like the ups and downs, you still are totally loyal. And so do you ever think like, do you ever second guess your loyalty? Like there's a case going on right now, which I don't know if you're familiar with, there's a, an artist named Takashi 69 Have you heard of this story? Yeah, I know who he is. So it's just a very interesting- The, 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 uh, the rapper. Yeah, but what's very interesting about him, which I, I wonder if you could resonate with, is he stood on a 
a federal court and he sold a bunch of people out. But I think about it sometimes too. He was 23 years old and he was at the top of the world a lot like you were when you were mowing him down, you know what I'm saying? Making big bucks. And so he had this decision to make, like, I could, I could leave prison and these people weren't loyal to me anyway. I could leave prison and walk away free, come out to 10 million bucks, or I could take the rap because of the code, even though these people weren't loyal to me in the first place. I, I, that's a great question. Cause that, that was me, right? That was me. And obviously, um, I took the, uh, I took the, uh, not the easy path. I took the hard path because it was an integrity thing. And, um, and, uh, that was what we taught. We were taught to, 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 and, you know, growing up and that was taught by being preached by Whitey and the crew and everything else. Um, so you know what? I honored that I did. And like Mark Wahlberg has once said to me, he said, you know, John did not do anything wrong. So everybody looked at it at Mark in the meeting for Rap Pass as a book. And they said, what do you mean? He said he did everything right that he was taught. So that said, um, six nine, I mean, I wouldn't want to be six nine, I'll be honest with you. I'm just saying, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't like six nine. I've seen that on the social media already. So Mr. Six Nine, you know, be careful. I just can resonate with being the same age as him and wanting things for yourself. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I get I, it. I, I, you know, I grew up tough. I grew up, I was trained. I was schooled. I was, I was uh, molded, if you will, to live that life and, to, and, and, and also schooled to expect uh, what would happen if it did happen and how to handle it. And Whitey, he, he schooled me all the way through it. You know, he did. He told me about his stories in life and, uh, and, and inside prison himself and Alcatraz and, and Atlanta and stuff like that. And, and, um, and uh, I, you know, I, and I, I wanted to emulate him. Was he just, I mean, I could read a bunch of books and stuff. I actually have an author coming up on Friday. His name's Dave Wedge. He just wrote a book called hunting whitey which is all about just the chase um was he just a, like a master salesman just like could sell anything sell anything uh, i would say so absolutely yeah but a very convincing individual at the same time uh very eloquent actually um and his speaking and and his tone and his actions and mannerisms and stuff like that and he was you know the, the, he comes from an intelligent family i mean uh, they've all done very well for themselves, and and uh, and uh, um, uh, he was just a he was an intelligent guy. There's no doubt about that. And um, he was very well spoken, very well mannered, and he could he could have a conversation with a a dog, you know, in the street, and and or he could have a conversation with the CEO of a, a 500 Fortune company. That's how well versed he was yeah and I try to emulate emulate that myself and growing up and I never really read a lot growing up at all and you know first thing he said start reading 
read, read, read. So I became an avid reader while I was away and uh, for my pastime. And um, so it helped me in some ways, uh, you know, you know, in some ways, you know, I, I look back and I try to take the, the good out of the bad, you know, and think about the good that I had gotten out of that life and not just thinking about the bad and um, not having a father growing up and thinking about, you know, the different, uh, the older guys and stuff, but of course, Whitey and, and, and uh, you know, being like a father figure and, and saying, hey, read a book, uh, you know, your hair's too long. Why do you have a little tail in the back? Cut that up. You know, you're a clean cut guy, be clean cut, you know? I mean, you know, just stuff like that, you know? Uh, and, and, and from a kid that didn't have any father at home, coming from an older man, um, it was, you know, he was showing care, care you know? So it, it meant a lot. Was the story with your dad, was it the same as a kid from Southie where he has the alcoholic dad? Was your dad around at all or? No, he wasn't around at all. And he was an alcoholic and he was out of the house. And, and I remember him vaguely. And um, I maybe visited him a couple of times where he lived in Southie. Actually, he lived around the corner from a, 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 a Shays Tavern, which is still there in Southie on Broadway, West Broadway. He lived around the corner there in a house and my sisters used to bring me down there when I was a kid to visit him, but it was only a couple of times, and I remember him very vaguely. Um, but I do remember the, the, the day that my uncle uh, knocked on the door of my uh, house where we were living and, and told my mother, I was standing behind my, my, behind my mother, I was at the age of nine, I do remember him saying, you know, my father's name was Al, he goes, Al is dead. He's, he's died. He's passed away. What was that like? It, it's, it's just things, little things like that, that stick with you. I mean, and that was kind of my big takeaway of the book too, was just like your upbringing was just all negativity. Like there was so much bad shit going on. There was a lot of bad stuff, but at the same time, there were some good stuff too, for sure. Um, you know, uh, my mother did care, of course, and she was a very caring person in that sense, but she was a no-nonsense no, no person. Um, and she led with a heavy hand, if you will. Um, but at the same time, she, she gave as much as she could, could and she gave a lot. And, um, and, uh, she showed a lot of love in that, if you will. Um, um, so there were good times, you know, like Christmas and Easter and, and stuff like that. We had a, you know, a decent Christmas and she saved money all year long and in the bank account every week, they take a little bit out and put it in a Christmas savings account. And so we could, we could have a, a, a proper Christmas. That Salisbury steak. Yeah. Yeah, I've never had it. Is it good or terrible? I haven't had it in many years, but uh, I actually liked it. And I actually, <laughs> actually, you know, I don't know if I'd eat it now, but, <laughs> but um, why not, right? 
Well, you, uh, yeah, you talk about bringing in the book, you brought your wife, you to Avon Louis. So was Avon Louis like the number one in the city back then? Still is. Well, it, it, it was, it was pretty high. Yeah. It was pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if you were to take Lori out somewhere nice, where would you take her now in the city? Oh no, we don't, we don't, not, not, not so in the city. There's plenty of great places in the city. Um, but we prefer traveling. We prefer traveling to go eat to somewhere like that we really love, like Nobu. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. We love, we love Nobu. Was that Malibu? Um, no, they have them in New York. The ones in New York. We go to either one in New York or we go to the one in uh, uh, LA or we go to the one in um, uh, Miami. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh yeah, bougie stuff, right? <laughs> That's. I just heard that word the last few bougie. days. Bougie. Uh, well, rappers love Nobu. They always talk about Nobu. Oh yeah. No, no. It's 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 my favorite. As a matter of fact, for Mother's Day, I made. Um, uh, a few dishes uh, of of uh, Nobu's uh, uh, dishes, uh, the yellowtail jalapeno dish, and 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 some white fish dish and stuff like that for Larry. I went out, bought the nice grade fish Japanese store and all that, and I had all the the same the same ingredients that Nobu would use. Did Lori like your version or Nobu's more? Uh, she loved my version, but she, <laughs> she was being kind, man. <laughs> she, she loves the taste of Nobu way better for sure. And so don't I. Yeah. So do you do a lot of cooking now? Is that, how do you like, how do you pass the time now? Hobbies? Like, what do you do? Uh, most of the time I'm working. Um, and, uh, after work or oh, my time off, um, if I'm not working out, uh, um, I'm, uh, I'm definitely cooking. Me and Laurie love to cook. And uh, we've, we've honed our skills, if you will, in cooking. You know, like I just said, it, it doesn't matter what I do. I always want to try to do it the best. And she's the same way. So. The quarantine's probably been good for that, right? Oh, yeah. I was off 10 weeks anyway, quarantine for 10 weeks. And we were cooking meals twice a day. And I gained like eight pounds. But that since has been lost. And I was still running at five miles every other day, if you will. And I still gained eight pounds. So, so yeah, you, what do you do for fitness right now? Uh, running. Uh, the gym isn't open now. So I've been just doing the running and stuff like that. And, uh, and um, which I love to run. And, um, and then I'll do uh, a stick with the shadow boxing and stuff like that. And, and, um, and all that good stuff. But when the gym's open, I'm in the gym hitting the speed bag, hitting the heavy bag. Oh yeah, I'm still at it physically. Yeah, it's one thing I, I've realized through the podcast is people who are into fighting, they'll they'll train like a fighter the rest of their life. They just love the training. Yeah, so I just saw something on social media the other day of an 83-year-old man that was a world champion in 1963. And he, he was in the gym hitting the heavy bag and it was unbelievable to see an 83-year-old man hit the heavy bag like he did. It was unbelievable. But the movement, he still had the movement. He had the jab going, the right hand, you know. Um, and he was throwing combinations. It was amazing. Yeah, it was. And then he had an asthma attack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, hey, man, I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for doing this for us.
My pleasure. And thank you for having me on. And uh, you guys are doing a great job. And, uh, you know, you guys are going places. That's good. How, how was I compared to Don Lemon? Me or Don Lemon? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you definitely. Don's a great guy, though. Don, Don is a great guy. And uh, Lexi, yeah. you hear that? Lexi's a big CNN fan. Yeah, Don's a good man. <laughs> um okay so we have two bits to end the show the first one is called gdp sales mode if you saw any of the mickey episode you might have seen a little bit of it but i'm going to give you the floor for 40 seconds you don't have to use all 40 most people do to pitch whatever you want to pitch if it's wise words it could be wise words if you have a product you want to sell your book probably etc um you can sell that, but I'm going to count down from five seconds. You got 40 seconds to rip it. Okay. So I would like, I got to count down. Okay. <laughs> Let me get the timer ready and I'm going to put my hand up when it's 10 seconds left. Get, get ready, John. Three, two, one sales mode. So this book here is a New York times bestseller, John Red Shea rap bastards. It's a fascinating story, a true story and a realistic story that is uh, from the town of South Boston. Read this book, understand it, and then you're going to enjoy every bit of a real, authentic Boston Irish story. Done. Effective. You had 15 seconds left. Okay, so I sold something. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, you got to get that book on audio. I know. I don't know why they don't do it. I don't know why. It's up let, to the public. Let me now. voice it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> that'd be sweet. Yeah. Okay. So this is how we start and end the show. And follow me closely because a lot of people mess this up. You say, hi, your name. And this is my golden hour. Directly after, no break. Hi, your name. And that was my golden hour. So you're going to say, hi, I'm John Redshay. And this is my golden hour. Hi, I'm John Redshay. That was my golden hour. Okay. Whenever you're ready. Hi, I'm John Red Shea. This is my golden hour. Hi, I'm John Red Shea. That was my golden hour. That was perfect, man. <laughs>